off and you were put in the middle of the changing room and you were hit with football boots just for being faster than everybody else. You know, or going down into the drying room area and being punched by people who were in your teammates and called the N-word. Hello and welcome to our new podcast, Valley's Voices, where we'll be sharing stories about you, about me, about us. Who we are and what we look like might be different, but where we live and what unites us is something we all have in common. Join me, your local cohesion officer, as we invite local folk to explore the untold stories from your local community. Hello and welcome. My name is Harriet Leake and today we are going to be speaking to ex-professional footballer and Torvine resident Sean Wharton. Hope you enjoy. I am one of five children that was raised by um, Muriel and Sonny Wharton, um, who came over here during the winter's time. My dad came oh, first. Right. When he came, his whole plan really was to sort of work and then eventually return to the Caribbean. And mm-hmm. I think most people that came on during the winter's time would probably say the same. He came and he worked and he saved up money. I think the journey cost about £70 mm. um, by boat. So he came on HMS Monstrat, same yeah. as my mother, a couple of years later. It was £70 by boat, or it was £75 by plane. And I think, you know, if you think about it now, you'd probably say, jump on a plane, it's going to yeah. take you, like, two months less. Yeah. However, £5 in the 60s is a lot of money. So uh, he chose to come by boat, mm-hmm. saved up some money, worked in a factory in New um, which was the only factory in Newport which was employing black. There were two. And then after a couple of years, he saved up some money and he sent for my mother. She also came by boat on HMS Monstrat. And she also came to Newport. They didn't know what Wales was. They thought Wales was a town, not thinking it was a country. And after that, they saved up again and sent for my other two sisters, um, Vida and Annette. They came over by plane yeah. with an escort at that time. And during that process then, in and 65, my other two siblings were born, um, Valerie and then Basil, and I was born in 1968. Mm. So I think with coming over here from St. Kitts and other people that travelled over here from um, the Caribbean, you know, for definitely my parents, they, they bought over a legacy and they left mm-hmm. a legacy. And they also came with um, this baton of hope, yeah, you know, which isn't a uh, physical baton. It's something which they naturally hand over to their children to carry forward and pass on to their children and their children. And they passed this baton of hope to me. And I was raised in Newport. When they first came to Newport, they sort of were met by um, racism. They were met by no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, which would resonate with a lot of people coming back from the Caribbean. And then they were met with a petition saying they do not want these black people living in these streets. And it's really interesting when I reflect on the resilience that my parents would have had to have during that time, you know, being invited over mm. by the British Empire to work, having to repair the place after the war, and then be critiqued and ridiculed and criticised, probably more often on a weekly basis, maybe a daily basis, definitely a monthly basis, 100% a yearly basis, by people who would have invited them to come here in the first place, you know, and it doesn't make sense, but... You know, I really, really admire both my parents for that. 
mm. and being strong enough to rise above it. And ultimately, they gave me and my other siblings the strength to deal with anything that comes our way, really. Definitely yeah. me, you know, no matter what it is. We know we're strong enough because our parents gave us this pattern of hope. We can be anything we want to be. We can go anywhere we want to be. Mm. Yes, there'll be difficulties. But compared to the difficulties they had, I can't complain. Um, I was raised in Newport, you know, youngest of five. It was tough. It was an estate. There was thousands of children on the estate. Um, lots of fighting. How, was there many black families in that area at that time? Not many. I mean, we knew of them, which yeah. is which is ironic. You yeah, know, if they yeah. were, you knew them. <laughs> you know, and I think the connection then was the church. Well, my mother was is religious. Yeah. Um, my father died in um, 2000, age 62. Yeah. So he never got to go back, which was his original plan. Right. However, he's done left this legacy, which is yeah. great. But also, um, it was probably the only place you got to see people that looked like you. Right. And it was an occasion where we were able to dress up. You know, you might call it the Sunday best. Yeah. Um, I think churches have changed now, haven't they, where you can go dressed in tracksuit. And then it was smart shirt, tie, you know. Um, and it was, it was really nice because you got to see other people look like mm. you, other families. And it was very much part of the culture. Yeah. You know, culture isn't about reading literature. It's about having that lived experience. Mm. So that really gave us that culture and value and sense of belonging within mm. this community during that time on one day a week at least. Yeah. You know, and then we go back then and have to fight and battle the battle that we all had to fight in our different areas. Yeah. That's quite powerful in terms of where your parents come from and um, probably shared experiences in that community. Um, how you managed to build those kind of friendships and sense of belonging from so minimalistic kind of ways yeah. back in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is powerful and it's, you know, on occasions it almost felt like powerless because you're in a minority, yeah. you know, and um, if you've ever been in a minority, you will understand how it feels. If you've never yeah. been in it, then you might not have any sympathy yeah. to what it feels like to be part, you know, a little cog in this huge machine yeah. um, where, you know, you were treated differently just yeah. because of the colour of your skin. And I think for me, I don't come from a minority mm. group. I, you know, identify as a white female, yeah. heterosexual, and for me, I, I, I'm not ever going to understand, and I don't try to understand what it's like to come from a minority group, and I think it's interest. I find it really interesting speaking to people like yourselves, mm. to, I'll never understand it, but try to, um, and try to listen to stories. From, from my point of view anyway, and I know everyone's not like that, but yeah, yeah. for me, it's trying to build that empathy yeah. towards people. Yeah. And listening to that is just, I find it baffling, but you know, it, it was it, you lived it. My family was so strong and my parents, that's, you know, we built up this resilience. You know, my, my siblings are fantastic. Yeah. You know, Vida's a great example. She works as a lecturer in, um, South Wales University. Yeah. Um, Lynette, she has an MBA. She works for the MOD. Yeah. Um, Basil works in radiography. Mm. And my sister, Valerie, works for... Let me get this right. It's a patent office. <laughs> she's an executive officer. So, you know, my parents really would be 
really proud of yes, you know, of, of their children. Mm. Um, in comparison, you know, yeah. because there were a lot of um, opportunities, a lot of sort of places and, and, and situations where family could have gone the wrong way, individuals, mm. individually and, and as a family, but you know, we didn't. We, um, we all were successful in our ways, yeah. if you want to define success means that we we continue to have a lot of love for each other yeah we supported each other um we disagree sometimes which is good (laughs) but we stick together we meet every week so there's a very strong family connection and then we that continues then to the next generation my children nephews nieces and then the next generation of grandchildren hopefully they'll do the same how was school was school school was tough school was really different um in the sense that there was n- never really many people that looked like me. There wasn't many black children in the school yeah. for a start. And um, obviously my siblings went through schools with having a tough time. Yeah. Didn't really talk about the times that you had, like, specifically, mm. but aware of them, mm. yeah? Um, aware of fightings in the street, aware of certain families, mm. you know, walking up to the shop, aware of, you know, there's, there was a number of dogs that people had and dogs at that time were sort of roaming the street freely mm. not so much now because they cost two three yeah. pounds <laughs> however you know there was often a dog one way you went and there was a dog called um blackie and then another way you went people were calling their dogs black i can vis- visualize them now whether they were alsatians or labradors too and one was called the n-word so mm. most days you would hear these words on a regular basis because that's what people did. Yeah. You know, they linked, associated their dog with racist words. Yeah. Naturally. Um, so, growing up in Hartridge was tough um, and I was, I had a lot of fights. Physical fights? Physical fights, yeah. I had to fight a lot of times. Yeah. Um, so, my schoolhood, my primary school wasn't that bad. Right. The primary school in England was, was, was good. I had a really good experience there. Yeah. Good friendships, good teachers. Um, I was good at sport. Yeah. So I was fortunate. And I always think, oh, what? if I wasn't good at sport, what would happen? Yeah. You know what I mean? Which, which direction? When I got to the junction of life, which direction would I go? But I was, but I'm also conscious of people who maybe might, might not be. Um... So my sporting ability, and I was pushed by my brother, supported by my mum, my dad, all my siblings, really, Yeah. in my sporting um, ability. So I carried that through to comprehensive school, which was a different ball game as well, again, because, you know, obviously, as you know, different people from different mm-hmm. areas come. And the first thing people will see when they looked at me was my skin colour, you know. Mm-hmm. But they also saw then that I was good at sport. So I was accepted. Many were not and many were given names I recall recently maybe a bit last year a friend of mine called me and I think you see me on the television doing an interview and whatnot and um about racism yeah and um he said hi Sean how you doing I said yeah yeah I'm good how you doing he said cool and he said I've seen you on television it was really good I didn't really know what you were doing but I'm really pleased yeah and he said the conversation went I said okay and um, he said, you know, that we, you didn't really experience any racism in school, though, Sean, did you? Mm. And I said, well, maybe you didn't see it, <laughs> you know. 
And he said, because there was only three black people there. There was sort of you, um, there was a, a girl called Marcia, who was a new close friend, family friend at the moment. And there was Kunta Kinti, you know. And I said, well, Kunta Kinti, I said, if you know Roots, you will know what I'm talking about. If you do not know the film Roots, you will have no idea what I'm talking about. Kunta Kinti was one of the slaves on the slave um, ship in relation to slavery in this film called Roots many years ago. And I said, well, you do know his name was not Kunta Kinti, don't you? And he said, no, that's what everybody called him. I said, but no, his name was Philip or Michael, whatever his name was. Didn't know that, he said. So for you to say that there was no racism, clearly that evidence is, you know, maybe a little bit of ignorance um, because there was again I was good at sports so I knew that my vocation I knew I was going to be a sportsman at that time yeah and go off and play football for a living which I did so I was sort of fortunate really because I knew sport was going to give me that get out option yeah you know and not maybe go down the different route of crime or and that I'm you know I'm massive into sport okay. I don't know if you know cool. that but yeah no, I didn't know I am um, I've done sport my whole life and I suppose that was my identity as I was going through school as well yeah um I you know I can really understand how sport can help with that identity and I suppose for you I, I'm what I'm wondering is how that was different because you wasn't the same as everyone else. Mm, mm. Um, did you experience, like, was that a thing where you didn't experience as much as the others, or? Well, I think sports ultimately gives you the opportunity to shine if you're not academically bright. Right, yeah. You know, so it gave me that chance. Yeah. You know, um, academia was, was, was imp- it was important. My parents and my, my siblings stressed it. But sport gave me that other opportunity yeah you know and I think you know with me with sport you know everybody thought that you had to be fast because you, if you're black oh you're fast and you do it but there was still that expectation that you know the, the black kid was the fastest so mm. and, and people asking you why are you so fast and I remember telling my one mate that you know I just just put stones in your shoe that'll make you run faster and I can recall the day now and I was in my house, and, and he was he was my mate, and he put stones in his shoe. And I watched him run around the block. I was like, <laughs> it was like, no, nah, mate, I was only kidding. But he did it, because he yeah. wanted to be faster. So school was tough, you know, a lot of experience, a lot of fighting, a lot of times where I was forced to fight. I had to sort of constantly prove myself. Yeah. That, one, I was accepted. Two, I was good at sport. Two, I was... You know, one of the toughest kids in the school at that time. So that comes with any new person that comes in the school who have come to the school from another school and potentially were the toughest child in that school. Yeah. You're going to have to fight Sean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Did that come from peers? Yeah, it came from peers. It was peer pressure. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I, and I remember one occasion, somebody I thought was a really good friend, and I was in the middle of this fight in the middle of this circle that had gathered and this person saying um, you know kill him he's an n-word you know killing the n-word to kill. and I was like whoa it really took me back yeah. to this day this person and, and other, other people hearing it as well you know from a distance behind somebody else but I could clearly see them shouting a racial abuse towards me and thinking 
And that was who you thought was your friend? Who I thought point. were... I didn't necessarily think they were friends, but, but I didn't expect it from them. And yeah. It, and it just took me back to, you know what? No matter what I do, people are always going to think, some people, I'm that. You know, they're going to link me to that word. Yeah. And, and consistently did. And I do. Um, throughout my life. So, yeah, that was really um, a moment within school that just reminded me that people, some people, would constantly try and put me back in my place and another right. reminder of historic racism. Yeah. So, yeah, school life was um, interesting. Some really yeah. good memories. Um, made some really good friends who I'm still friendly with now. And it's, you know, it set the stall out for me moving forward. In terms of... Um when you were like a young person in school and, and those words were being thrown at you, um, did you reflect at that point? Or was it when you come away from school and realised that? I think as a child, do you reflect? You know, as an adult, I constantly reflect. Yeah. As a child, you just dealt with it. Because um, it wasn't in school. I mean, the same people that went to school were in the street yeah. know, walking around yeah. that, you know the same people who maybe were were you were friendly with not particularly mates had these dogs yeah. that were named the B word Blackie or the N word on a regular yeah. basis you know and um, so reflection maybe not um, thinking on occasions you know why me mm. you know um, how come I'm always having to fight or, you know, be that person that stands out. Yeah. You know, um, and like you said, when you stand out, you stand out. Yeah. You know, if I had blonde hair and people were picking on me because I had blonde hair, I couldn't then just, you can go and change it to be brunette. Yeah. You know, with me, it's, and with people who look like me, that's not the case. It's, yeah. it doesn't change. It won't change. You cannot then become somebody else, you know. Yeah. That's the first thing that people will see and, quite often the first thing people would judge you. Yeah, and I suppose for you, you had that strong resilience from your family mm. and you built that toughness yeah. to maybe not let it affect you as much as it could somebody else. I think, yeah, maybe, yeah. Mm. As much, yeah, you know, because, you know, you choose your battles. Yeah. I think, you know, over, over the years, I have um, built up the resilience and understanding you know which battle to choose you know when yeah. somebody's doing the microaggressions or you've been away of you or I want the same colour as you you know or, or um, being in the sun of you all these microaggressions you know might be okay the first time I wouldn't even say that but after years of hearing have you been in the sun of you who did your last slave die of all these little things where people are almost ignorant yeah. to the, the meaning of them they sort of wear thin, you know, you get tired of them, mm. you know, and am I going to question somebody every time they say that to me? Probably not, mm. because I potentially will be arguing with somebody every single day. Yeah. So you have to um, be mindful of when, how and where to challenge, yeah. you know, um, otherwise you could be, be battling every day. Yeah. 
was just wondering how that advocated now your career, leaving school, yeah. what, you, what you looked to do. I, you said you played football. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm guessing that football um, had similar sort of... Yeah, it did. I think, you know, I, I left school. Before I left school, I obviously I played for Wales, um, which was a great experience. Um, you know, I was the first, at that time, even language-coloured mm. player to play for Wales at schoolboy level. No. Um, that was the terminology which was used at that point. Yeah. You know, and you know, and on reflection now as an adult, you know, I think if society's going to attempt to be equal, we've got to stop celebrating first because we're still celebrating first. Right. If that makes sense. Even today, I'm talking back in 1984. But having left... Newport to go and play football um, in Sunderland. You know, we was I was I was met with fourteen other lads who were very good in their area, and um, to go and play football as well. And we all put together. So then there was a pecking order, and I was like, it was tough, you know, because again, name calling yeah. on a regular basis. Um, I remember being put into a what they call the Quangle Court, where I'd be sat in the changing room with 14 other lads and um, being put in the middle and asked questions by the head boy, who was the, the person that was in charge of the apprentices, mm. basically. And um, being fined five minutes, which meant that the light turned off and you were put in the middle of the changing room and you were hit with football boots just for being faster than everybody else. You know, or going down into the drying room area and being punched by people who were in your teammates and called the N-word mm. on a weekly basis. And um, it was like a cloakroom, basically. If you imagine a cloakroom, an old-fashioned yeah. cloakroom in a school, under the pitch, and um, you'd go downstairs and you'd hang up the wet gear that um, the footballers used, yeah. and it got wet, and then you'd hang it up to dry because it was like a boiler room. But it was huge. Imagine yeah. it was under a football pitch. And um, as soon as you get down there, all the boys would get down there. And and behold, to me at the time, they had already knew what their plan was. Um, So you get down there and I'd get down there and um, the lights would go off. So now you're in this room with 14 other players and lights would go off. And you just feel a punch then come through the courtroom. Yeah. And then it was like a free fall, um, but it was often like sort of, four, five, six, one to one. So was that sort of classed as banter? Or teammates? No, I mean, it was classed... In their eyes, I'm trying to In their eyes, it was bullying because they'd all been there, you know. I remember my first day in the changing room and, you know, so I was the first black apprentice at this football club too. Right, okay. So, you know, it was about acceptance and earning the rights, so... And they were a group of lads that had been together maybe since they were 12. We were all right, 16 um, now yeah. in terms of apprenticeships or academies, right, yeah. today's academies and whatnot. So they knew each other through football. Not all of them. Some of them were great. Some of them I'm still friends with now. Yeah. There was particular three or four, maybe more than that, six, who just every day called me names, picking on me. But because I'd built my resilience up for my family yeah. and my brother was, you know, prepared me and my yeah. sisters and my parents and I had this baton of hope. I knew what I had again. I wasn't fearful of anything and I gave as good as I got and um, one by one, 
picked yeah. them off and you know I had to earn my stripes unfortunately in a physical way yeah. which I did um, but that's the reality of it you know my it sounds like I was constantly fighting and I didn't want to fight but yeah you had, had to, to. <laughs> yeah not because you created it you just had to you were just forced into it and you either have to fight and stand up for what you believe in and or you know I'm aware that when bullies actually pick on people if you don't show some um, strength character or physically they continue to do it yeah um, but like I said I wasn't afraid yeah you know so fighting wasn't new to me <laughs> you know? yeah I was like okay you yeah know? took a few beatings but okay my, my time will come demanded respect then from the players um, who then moved on to somebody else mm. then because that's what they do you know because they knew they couldn't break mm. me I remember them being chased by the national front yeah um, and the same players who potentially would have been calling me racist names were sort of protecting me then and saying we were all running away from this skinheads with bomber jackets and Dr Martins and mm. tight jeans you know um and I sometimes think, you know, if, well, what would happen if they caught me? You know, would I be here talking to you today? Yeah. Or would I be somewhere else? And would my life path have gone down a totally different direction? You know? So, yeah, I experienced racism in football. Um, a banana stone at me um, at, at certain grounds when I was on the bench. And and so it was a... I was getting abuse from my teammates. I was getting abuse from the opposition teammates. I was getting abuse from the fans, you know. Yes, so, and I remember end. phoning my mum up one day and saying, "How are you doing, Sean?" I said, "Yeah, it's great. You know, everybody's nice, and I'm really having a good time." I wasn't going to tell my parents that things were tough. You know, I left Newport to be a professional footballer, and people just see football. Yeah. Even to today, you don't see the emotional impact that comes with it. Mm. You know, and 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 the strength the mental strength you have to have or not have 100%. just to get just to be accepted never mind even before you've kicked the football yeah you know if you haven't got that mental strength then you know talent alone ultimately will get will get you very far you yeah. need to have mental strength and, and for somebody like me and many lads before me and during my time and after me for a number of years not so much now if I'd have gone to my coaches and said listen I'm experiencing racism from so and so. They yeah. would have said, "Here's the next train back to Newport." You know, in terms of like support from teachers, coaches, staff, there was you. It just wasn't. I think thing. teachers wasn't. I mean, it was something which was just not really spoken about, not even addressed yeah. in school by anybody. Not that I can recall. Yeah, there was never really. Um, that discussion. Bear in mind, when I went to school, particularly in the primary, teachers and and comp, teachers were still hitting children. Right. In relation to the cane yeah. or the dapper, you know, <laughs> or the ruler, you still had teachers punishing yeah. children because it was, uh, you know, you 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 dealt with issues within school because you didn't want your parents to know. Right. Um. So there was that rhetoric going on in school, and I was attendance in primary school and mm. in comp people still get McCain in football nah no chance you wouldn't never ever the support mechanisms were not there 
and you just wouldn't mention it to them. You you dealt with it or you didn't, whether it impacted on your ability on the field. That probably wasn't linked to it. Yeah. The fact that you was experiencing bullying or racism from your teammates, it was a, probably more about your ability wasn't good. Never mind the fact that you're going to go home to face 14 lads who yeah. pretend you're going to put something in your bed or um, put something um, in your shoe, mm-hmm. you know. Um, again, there was microaggressions. So, no, it wasn't really talked about. It wasn't mentioned. There wasn't the, the support mechanism there because, of course, it didn't happen. No, yeah. So, in terms of now, obviously, there's a lot of players taking the, the knee. Mm. You've got the BLM, mm. Black Lives Matter movement. Obviously, we had the, there was quite a big uh, media on the England game. Yeah. Um, what's your opinions on sort of those... I mean that that's a huge question, isn't yeah. it? It's it's there's a lot of stuff there. I think that it's I think ignorance plays a part. I think, you know people, organisations, society, you know, it's it's to somebody like me who is an advocate for positive social change within society yeah. and always have been, it none of that was new. Yeah. None of that was a surprise. Um and if you think about sport you know, um, it's it's been going on for so long. Mm. You know, it's we can go back to Jesse Owen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and his fight. You can go on talking about Ma- um, Muhammad Ali mm. and his fight in relation to to um, racism and how they were dealt with. You know, Jesse Owen had to race against horses after he won the Olympic medal, mm. but he received racism um, during that year. You know, Muhammad Ali he couldn't even go and have a meal. Walk through the front door. Had to go in the back way after they won an Olympic medal. Mm. Colin Kaepernick, the American footballer who took the knee, didn't get another contract mm. for many years after that. So racism and sport, you know, it's sort of been hand in hand. Yeah. This, but people believe that it's, oh, this is new now. It's terrible, yeah. isn't it? What's going on? You know, Raheem Sterling and the three lads, the English lads, but it's been going on for years. Taking a knee isn't about, you know, the message has got lost. It's not about taking a knee. It's about it's about systemic racism. Yeah. It's about racism which is embedded within society, mm. you know? And people don't just rock up at football venues and become racist. No. They come, they take their views with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? They don't switch it on when they get to a football stadium and then yeah. switch it off when they leave and then they go to work and all of a sudden they're not racist. Yeah. And if you've ever gone to a football match, you know it's an expensive day. Yeah. Under pounds, under fifty pounds, maybe two hundred pounds depends where you go. So we're not talking about social deprivation, you know, people who maybe haven't got work, haven't got jobs, not educated, and come with these views. We're talking about, mm. you know, sometimes professional individuals. Yeah. You know, quite often police officers, teachers, doctors, opticians, right across the board within society, racism is is systemic. Yeah. Um, and in order to to eradicate racism, there needs to have this discussion. There needs to be awareness sessions. Yeah. Um, people don't like it. They mm. hate it. They don't want it. Yeah. Because um, you know, Black Lives Matter is 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 historic. It's, it didn't start with George Floyd. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there needs to be more discussions. There needs to be more. Um, chain opportunities you know mm. I'm a consultant I've got a business no boundaries and, and we go around educating organisations 
yeah. on race awareness, you know, and I think people need to have these discussions more often and accept that there is racism within society, not just on um, Black History Month. No. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? Not yeah. just about that. It's not just one month in a year. No. Um, it needs to be a consistent, constant message. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, hearing stories like your own, it really puts that real realism to it. Mm. Um, because like you said at the beginning, if, if you're not from a minority group, you don't understand it. Yeah. And... I think listening to your story, it really hones down on how long and how tough this has been mm-hmm. for people like yourself. Absolutely. So in terms of your past experiences, you said yeah. you're a consultant yeah. and you're doing your own sort of um, training and no no boundaries. Yeah. I see on t-shirt. But yeah. Yeah. So has, has that come from your past experiences or...? Yeah, I think it has. I've always been an advocate. I've heavily always been involved in union work. Um, I remember in the nineties, I I contacted sort of um, Torvine and asked them for a list of black workers. Right. It was at the headquarters then. I think the main building wasn't it. It was County Hall. County Hall. This was the nineties, and the person I spoke to said they'd get back to me. Not a problem. <clears throat> And it got back to me about three or four days later. And they said, sorry, Sean, we cannot give you a list of all the black people working for Torvine, but we can give you a list of all the people who are blacklisted. And I said, excuse me? And they said, yeah, we can give you a list of the people. That <laughs> I can see your face. <laughs> and, but, you know, and I think, oh, wow. I said, okay. So I spoke to my manager at the time. I said, this is the experience I had. I want to get, I want to understand. I was trying to sort of create this um, self-organised group. Yeah. You know, um, maybe a support mechanism. Because I was aware that the black men, the black people who were within Torvine were potentially like low-paid workers. Maybe didn't get the support they needed. So, you know, let's pull everybody together and see if we can offer individual support as a group. And that was the response I got. I was like, gobsmacked yeah you know uh, I was gobsmacked but then I wasn't surprised as well I was like wow what is this yeah you know um, and then I reflected on it and I thought this can't be right and that gave me even more passion then to say you know what I'm going to run with this yeah and I'm get this is what this is going to be me and I and I got heavily involved in the union and um, in terms of black members work and um and that sort of drove me in a direction where I am today, you know, mm-hmm. and um, educating organisations on race awareness. Everybody wants training, but everybody wants the answers, mm. you know. What's the answer then? What do we do? You know, um, but there's no answers. No. The, the beginning is a discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have the discussion. So that was in the 90s with Gwent and then um, having children. And I've got six children myself, as yeah. we spoke about, you know, we've got Daniel, Natalie... Um, Alex, Christian, Theo, and Ellis. And, you know, they've all worked within the borough because I moved to Torvine then, so I married um, yeah. Joanna and um, she's a Combine girl. And then I ultimately moved to Combine. I've been living here since the early 90s. So I see Torvine as, you know, my hub and my home. Yeah. You know? 
and um, I enjoy living here. It's a very old town. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of ignorance within it. Yeah. And um, it's it's different to Newport being so diverse. Yeah. There's very, you know, you know when somebody moves in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in Torvine, obviously, you know, people, they've moved in up there. No? Okay. So it's, it's, it's different in Torvine, but the battle is still there. Yeah. You know, and all my children, my son, you know, he's experienced racism um, in many different ways. Um, he's, a, he's a deputy head teacher. When he got the job, you know, people sent him um, monkey emojis. Said he only got it because he's black. You know, my other son then experienced racism. He's a poet and he experienced racism. In um, Kumran, actually, in direct racism, he was waiting for somebody at the snooker centre. Yeah. Opposite the social service. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there was somebody sent a message saying that this black man was looked to him. You know, just that they're waiting for somebody. You know, and ignorance and those yeah. microaggressions and those micro racist views. And I'm guessing that is quite recent, those two it's events. It's a few years, because, yeah, the one's recent, well, very recent. Yeah. My other son then who had that, that's maybe a year, two years ago. But the response and nothing come of it. You know, he made yeah. a complaint. Nothing come of it in terms of in terms of the the borough, but that's not good enough. And um, you know, I'm not saying we want people to lose their jobs or anything, but it's having that discussion, being educated. Yeah. You know, what is that about? What that what is that bias about? You now, where did it come from? How did it get here? Mm. How can we manage it? What do you think should have happened? How would you feel if it was you? So the emotion gets lost, and all they think about is what they see as a concern, this man loitering around, you know, um, this area. You know, people saying then, oh, right, you know, monkey emojis because he was successful, only got it because of the colour of his skin. And it's constant reminders of historic events. Yeah, all my children have, have unfortunately, in different ways, have experienced some form of racism. And this is why I do what I do. This is why I've got my consultancy. This is why I try and educate as many people as I can. Yeah. You know, it's not just my role to eradicate racism. It's everybody's role. So it's important that the, the discussion is held and, um, you know, and it's, but it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's challenging. The best way to stop racism is to stop being discriminatory. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way. Yeah. You know, um, but people are getting bored with it. Mm. taking a knee they're not doing this and I hold these discussions um, with organisations in relation to disproportionality you know even with Torvine Borough Council that you work with you can't be who you can't see Mm. I don't see many people within the borough that look like me Mm. you know and if they are at what level do they work at you know who's the highest ranking if you want to use that terminology person who was black, Asian or from an ethnically diverse origin. Mm. I don't know them. Maybe I shouldn't know them, but they're not visible. Yeah, and I think sort of in this area, um, on your um, childhood, is that we are very much a white um, community and we have black ethnic minorities and four mm, you know, percent yeah yeah so we know who those families are absolutely if you yeah. come from the area yeah and i think that's where you were all those years ago back in newport that's right in terms of our communities and i'm not talking about um well everyone but if say a black family moved into 
a street, mm. as an example, um, primarily white. How, what are the challenges there that we sort of need to do or what we can do with our communities to help them with help with less discrimination, less racism or no racism, should say really not? I think I think it's an understanding, isn't it? People, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. You know, and you rightly said, if you don't live that lifestyle, if people are not saying to you... Um, when did you last leave, die from? Or like I said previously, you know, how long have you been in the sun? Mm. No, on a regular basis, when you if you can afford to go on a holiday, you're not going to understand no. that you've heard that. 500 times yeah you know it wasn't funny the first time it's not funny now you won't get it you won't have an understanding of it um in torvine there's almost like a, a an ignorance you know you got people say that they're accepted then you have a group of people working outside mcdonald's and then people say oh look at that group of people there you know the uber drivers you know it's almost like oh my word well it's like different country here mm. you know and i've heard that you know, naturally, people saying that and not processing what they're actually saying. Yeah. Um, in terms of a black, um, an Asian, ethnic, minority, ethnic diverse yeah. um, family, it would have that understanding. But I think, you know, we have to rewind that and we have to understand and, and have an understanding of why there's mm-hmm. not many black, Asian and diversely, um, diverse ethnic people living in Torvine. Yeah. You know, and I think if we reflect and have that discussion, why is it then? You know, what is it about? What isn't attractive? Why is Torvine not attracting people of different ethnicities and culture yeah. in comparison to other places? You know, places like that are not, they don't come from people moving in, they, they, they come from people moving out. So if 500 families moved into Torvine, you know, from different ethnic origins, would Torvine then still be 90, three percent white Welsh European people probably move out I'm not living here with them lot Mm. I'm off you know and that's generally how things work so it's about education Mm. you know everybody yeah it's about not just certain people it's about ensuring that everybody gets the opportunity to have the discussion reflect on their unconscious bias be honest. Mm. Starting off with Torvine Borough Council, mm. you know, with their employees, you know, every single one of them. If you want Torvine to be a more um, diverse and um, understanding borough, I think ultimately people have to start with themselves. Yeah. Because people come to me and say, I need, can you educate this person? Can I do this slot? And then I say, well, what about you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what about you? It should really start from you. Um, so I think that's that's the important message, you know, and and for me it's 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 that button that my parents gave to me. I have to hand on to my children. Yeah, you know, I've got six grandchildren. After, you know, and, and they're fantastic, and I love them all to bits. And, and Leo and um, and Havison and, and they live. Sorry, Leo and J- Jermaine live up in the Pontypool area, and you got Havison and Josh who live in the Kumban area. Mm. Then you've got um, Oakley and um, Esme, four boys and two girls. Mm. And I do want to do it because I don't want their life to be as tough as what mine was. Mm. I want them to be accepted because of who they are, not how they look, you know, and move to an area that they can go to because they want to live there, yeah. not have to think about where they're going to live because potentially 
they may, may well receive, you know, yeah. ill treatment because of that and um, be accepted because of who they are. Yeah. So, you know, that's the reason why I do what I do because I love my family so much and I want their lives to be like anybody else yeah. with a family. So it's about understanding, it's about accepting, you know, there's a, it's about sort of having an understanding that for some people it's different. Mm. And, you know, when you've got names like of pubs, like the Black Boy, mm. you know, and um, Jim Crow Street. Is it Jim Crow in Torvine? It's, it's, I think it is, isn't it? I think it's Jim Crow Street in Nanaraven. You know, and all linked to potential slavery, slavery masters or, yeah. you know, Black Boy pub. Automatically, people look at you. Oh, you know. And again, I'm not saying that they're racist. I'm saying that consistently they could be linked to racism, mm. you know, but it also makes people stand out instantly. Yeah. So that's that's really the way I think that things could be better in Torvine. It's, you know, I'm, we're foster carers as well in Torvine. I, right. I forgot to mention that. And, but, you know, the discussion within social care is zero. Mm. You know, not accepting, you know, transracial placements, you know, whether it's white kids with black families or whether it's black families with white, black kids. The discussion, it's almost as if it's like, you know what, we're not sure what to do, so let's do nothing at all. Right, and yeah. this isn't a critique of any individuals, but that's that's what it is. That's the reality of it. Shy away from these discussions, maybe until Black History Month comes up, they might do a poster, they might do this, might show support, but that's it. So... You mentioned at the beginning that um, there was sort of terminology used for the dogs, mm-hmm. um, sort of words that are used, like you said, what did your last slave die of? Um, and it's terminology that have been u- used for, for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose it's, it's putting straight or looking at it and whether that, Sometimes ignorance is looked as a justification for that those that type of language. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just what would your sort of advice be in terms of being an advocate for race? But it's having a recognition and an understanding that you know terminology has changed. Some words were acceptable previously, um, and they're not acceptable now. And I think it's having an understanding of the history of the words. Mm. That's key. Yeah. You need to know the history of it, why it's not acceptable now, what it means. Yeah. You know, so history, what it means, and why it's not acceptable now. Yeah. You know, and that takes discussion. That takes race awareness training. That takes um, open and honest dialogue. Yeah. um, To sort of educate as many people as you possibly can. Yeah. Give them the old terminology, the current terminology, and what it means. Yeah. It's vital. Yeah, and I think um, it's being um, honest with yourself and asking questions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, going back to sort of Torvine being older generation, it's understanding that for some of that older generation, they were watching Rising Damp, Mm. um, Love Thy Neighbour, all these programmes which dehumanised black people mm. and they were watching those shows as if it was Saturday Night Live as if it was like hand and deck now mm. <laughs> they were you know the minstrels you mm. know was another one as if you know that was the for the older generations that was their Saturday night entertainment yeah for a lot of people around the UK not just Torvine 
But if we're focusing on Tovine, because it's an older generation here, they would have watched those. Yeah. So it's it's so their views of of racism would have been dehumanizing black people because that's what they watched. Yeah. That's what they knew. You don't know what you don't know. Um and and Torvine are almost like it's strange because you you know, when I first moved to Torvine people would say, Oh yeah, I like you, Sean, but you know what, I don't like them others. Yeah. So racism is different in Torvine in, in, in the UK now. It's it's not as blatant and blunt as what it used to be. Yeah. This is but it has a huge potentially emotional impact on people anyway. Yeah. And people don't want to really understand that emotional impact that when you hear these words on a daily basis for 50 years, mm. how is that going to feel for you emotionally? Is it going to put you into a traumatic state? Are you going to be fearful of certain things? Mm. Are you going to be fearful of going to certain places within Torvine? Or being yourself? Are you going to be judged straight away, which makes you not go? Mm. Or are you going to challenge? If you challenge, then he's got a chip on his shoulder. So into, you touched on, um, like, people fearing going somewhere or yeah. it could traumatically like your mental health and absolutely have yeah. you ever felt that way or um I, I spoke recently um on crime watch and said about going to football matches and what i said was that you know i instantly not a paper one have to sort of do a quick risk assessment and whether i go right. in my head yeah. whether i attend this venue or whether I go to this football match, or whether I go to certain parts of Torvine yeah. at certain times, evenings, um, certain pubs, if I decide to go to a pub for the meal or whatnot. No, but I go to this place on holiday. So I'll make risk assessments in my head Yeah. whether it's going to be safe for me and my family to go or not, or whether I'm going to feel comfortable there, Yeah. you know, or whether I'm going to get this uh, joke when I walk through the door. Um, or not and so ultimately that's what I do and yeah. if I think at any point that you know what I can do it like this today yeah, I'll choose to go elsewhere that could be linked to white privilege if you want to talk about that um, ultimately oh, so yeah I ultimately make risk assessments most days of my life you know racism comes in many forms it could be leaving out yeah. It could be ignorance, it could be ignoring, it could be violence, it could be name-calling, it could be cyberbullying. Mm. You know, I, I think it would be remiss for us to think that racism is just somebody shouting the N-word walking down the street, yeah. which also happens. So it's having those discussions, I think dialogue needs to happen. Like today, yeah. you, know, you know, this is really important that this is discussed and, and whether um, yourself or anybody else Chris feels uncomfortable with the discussions that we're having that's we need to have these discussions yeah they need to be held yeah you know um, I am one of many many stories yeah um, and we also need to focus on the positives as well but not ignore yeah the reality of being uh, a black Asian or ethnically diverse individual living in this yeah. borough and working in in an area um, and work and being part of a big huge organisation which doesn't reflect any other skin colour than white. Mm. Mm. So you mentioned um, white privilege. 
people really dislike that term, you know, and I yeah. and I go in great depth with that in, in during training, um, race awareness discussions. Um, they dislike it because they believe it's linked to wealth and it's not. Yeah. You know, it's white privilege is is about, you know, not having the same journey, mm. you know, having the same starting point as a white person, but being judged, having mm. different obstacles to climb over to reach your destination. Mm. Um, and not being judged by the colour of your skin as soon as you leave your door. Yeah. You know, it's not about wealth. You know, it's not about money. No. It's not about materialistic things. It's about being judged purely mm. because of your skin colour. Mm. And if you don't, you know, many people are privileged and many people have a lack of privilege. You know, many people suffer discrimination in many different ways. Mm. Um, and I can give you lots and lots of examples. But if you're not judged purely because of your skin colour, yeah, you know, that would be deemed as white privilege. It's not a criticism. No. It's not a critique. It's not a, um, it's not trying to make people who are white um, feel bad. Mm. It's about recognising, yeah. you know, that for some people, every day is different for them. They mm. get treated differently nearly every day of their lives purely based on our skin colour. Nothing else, just their skin colour. Um, and if people do feel uncomfortable with it, then let's have that discussion. What yeah. is their comfort? Yeah. You know, what, yeah. What is it? What is it we feel uncomfortable about? Let's talk about, you know, unconscious bias. And then what is it about, let's, what is it about those two words that is making you uncomfortable? Mm. You know, because I'm not criticising you individually. Yeah. I'm just allowing you to recognise the difference yeah. in two people who may start at the same point. Mm -hmm. So you have the same destination, mm -hmm. but have totally different obstacles to climb over. Yeah. A lot of people have been through a lot in their life and they yeah. will hone down on that word. Absolutely, and had some really tough times. Yeah. You know, I have a lot of friends who were white and had really horrific times. Yeah. Financial times, relationship difficulties, employment difficulties, mm. you know, to the maximum. But it's not to do with their skin colour. <laughs> Why have you stayed in Torvine your whole life? I love Torvine. I think it's a great place to live. You know, it's I've been able to nip into Newport when I when it suits to see my family and nip back. Um, I'm very comfortable there. Um, my children were raised there yeah. in in, in the schools around Torvine. They've had a really good education. Their friendships were forged there. Um, I'm accepted by most people. Within mm -hmm. Torvine, I have to say, um, majority of people make me feel welcome. It's just a minority, mm. um, which makes me think about maybe moving back to Newport or where there's more um, people that look like me, mm. potentially. But, you know, I, I want to just have choice in life. I shouldn't have to think about having to do things like that because I want to live with people who look like mm. me. You know, my family are here. Um, it's a lovely place to live, mm -hmm. you know, um, the people are always majority friendly and interested in you. Yeah. You know, you could say nosy on occasions. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but that's the Torvine way. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's part of my life.
thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed. Please leave us a review and share amongst your friends, families and work colleagues. The podcast will be live on our social media platforms, Torvine County Borough Council on Facebook, Torvine on Instagram and at Torvine Council on Twitter. It will also be available on our website, www.torvine.gov.uk. Please keep an eye out for more series.